Today we talk with two separate authors. Both are poets and novelists and observers of life and culture and have a flair with language. Andre Kudrescu and Barbara Quick. I am Suzanne Lang and I bring you a novel idea. In a minute, we'll visit with longtime NPR commentator, editor of Exquisite Corpse, novelist and poet, Andre Kudrescu. Later in the broadcast, we'll visit with novelist, screenwriter, and poet Barbara Quick, whose recent novel is What Disappears, and she also has a book of poetry containing acclaimed poems, The Light on Sifnos. So stay with us for my conversations with two compelling artists. Andre Cadrescu immigrated to this country from Romania during the 1960s, when Israel was essentially buying the freedom of Romanian Jews by paying off the Ceausescu regime. Once in America, Andre gravitated toward other poets and intellectuals and has created a following through his long-running NPR commentaries, his Peabody Award-winning film Road Scholar, and his books, essays, and poetry published at an impressive rate. He taught for many years at Louisiana State University and founded Exquisite Corpse, a journal of books and ideas. I recently spoke to him from his home in New York in advance of his appearance in Sonoma County, a place he once called home. Let's listen to our conversation. Welcome today to visit with us. Thank you. I think I I would like to start out today talking with you a bit about home, Uh, your home, the nature of home why you left your homeland uh, all those many years ago. And um, now you are in New York, a home again. So can you talk a little bit about home for you? Uh, Sure. Uh, I have several homes. I left uh, my birthplace, which was a little town in Transylvania, Romania, called Sibiu, during the... um, uh, beginning of the communist dictatorship of Nicolae Ceausescu in, uh, in 1965. And uh, I went to Detroit in 1965 because uh, my mother and I, who emigrated together, uh, knew someone there who could vouch that we're not uh, some ferocious uh, communist uh, agent, uh, which at the time was the big boogeyman. Now I think that the immigration forms ask you if you're ever uh, part of a terrorist group. Back then they said, were you ever a member of the Communist Party? Anyway, we left because we could, because uh, Romania sold us to the state of Israel. Or another way to put it is that the state of Israel bought our freedom at a time when very few people were able to immigrate from those authoritarian countries uh, under the Soviet uh, control, because um, my mother and I were able to leave because of a secret deal between Ceausescu and Israel, just like ethnic uh, Germans uh, left to West Germany under the same terms. Um, the state of Israel paid $3,000 ahead for uh, each of us, 
and uh, we were able to escape from the terrible, hungry, poor, and uh, oppressed camp that was Romania in those days. So we went to Detroit, and then from Detroit, uh, I looked for the poets. I went to New York, where I live now, in 1967, and uh, lived uh, in an apartment for $60 a month <laughs> in the Lower East Side, a place that now is occupied by five uh, NYU co-eds for $3,000 each. And uh, then uh, went to uh, California in 1970, to San Francisco. And in 1973, I got a grant for $5,000 from the National Endowment for the Arts for my poetry. And with that amazing amount of money at the time, we bought a, a house in Monterio in Sonoma County, where I spent... Uh, the next four years in um, in kind of a communal bliss, actually. And uh, there I met a community of poets, uh, Pat Nolan, uh, Jeffrey Miller. We had a little circle of, uh, I mean, a little literary clutch that met at the coffee house. And we had a poetry reading series right later on. And then in 1977, I left uh, there. I lived with my uh, then wife and uh, our child in uh, Europe. Then we came back and didn't have enough money to go back to California because it had gotten expensive while we were moving. <laughs> so um, so we, uh, we got as far as Baltimore, where the girlfriend of a dear friend, uh, Jeffrey Miller, poet, who died. Uh, before we left, I uh, was living in Baltimore and uh, stayed there. And uh, I met John Barth at a literary party. And he said, uh, have you ever taught poetry? I said, no, what? Teaching is not my thing. So anyway, I, he hired me <laughs> to teach uh, at Hopkins uh, um, University in Baltimore. And uh, it was a very good and fruitful time. It was, in fact, Monterio too. I mean, there were good times for my writing where I was very inspired at that age, those ages. And then in 1984, uh, I was invited to Louisiana State University where I was, uh, where, you know, I became a, a professor and uh, taught how to, my students how to read and how to uh, not write. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, then, uh, you know, I retired in 2010 and uh, I moved to the Ozarks, to the uh, Missouri-Arkansas border, to the wilderness, to a wonderful place with caves on the uh, Buffalo River. Um, and lived there until 2016 when I came to New York, uh, just in time for... Um, the pandemic and World War Three, and I think yes. uh, now I'm coming back to Montreal, but yes. I'm not going to stay. I don't think. So, what what drove drove you to Arkansas? Well, my, uh, there's a wonderful place on the Buffalo River near a town called Yellville, which is north central Arkansas, where all the uh, the the hippies in uh, the South went after the first uh, whole earth catalog was published and decided to live on the land. And so there's there are some some wonderful community there of uh, artists and herb growers and, um, you know, people I liked uh, 
who um, made that a home in the middle of a very uh, you know, conservative yes. um, world there. But they, so most of them stayed, and um, you know, uh, uh, land was very cheap. I bought two hundred and some acres there, you know, for what it takes to probably buy a half a studio apartment now in uh, New York. Yes. And I uh, had there were caves and woods and some beautiful um, uh, land, you know, mountains, the oldest mountains in the U.S. And uh, that was a terrific seven years, very productive as well. In, in your writing, for writing? Yeah, right good, right. good place to write. I built houses, you know, I built like four houses on the land and I made a studio that was exactly... The distance from the main house to my studio is exactly the distance of uh, Toro from his mother. You could hear the dinner bell. <laughs> well, that that's a, a fascinating fact. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I find it interesting also that um, you, in some ways, you came almost as a refugee. I was a refugee. And not drew to America because of its culture, or I'm making that assumption, yet it's the American culture that maybe you have really taken a deep dive into in your tenure here as a writer. And so did that take you by surprise as a young man, or were you just like um, diving into a deep pool um, that you didn't expect? That's a good question. I I um I didn't speak any English when I came here. Uh, not I mean one sentence I had I think, but um, I, there was about I wanted to come to America because this is where the music was coming from. Because I heard you know I was listening to the music and uh, to rock and roll and the music of the late 60s. And I knew that this is where the, the magnetic uh, attraction was coming from. And uh, there was the possibility at the time that my mother and I would end up in Australia, where I could have been a shoe salesman of some <laughs> skill. And uh, <laughs> But that didn't happen. I did want to come and speak. I wanted to be a writer in English. Now, the Romanian tradition has it that all the exiles that uh, from that part of the world um, go to France. And uh, there are great French language writers who were exiled from Romania. And I wanted to go to France originally because I wanted to be like uh, Choran and Brancusi and uh, Ionesco, all those uh, wonderful writers. But then uh, a friend who was a poet in Romania said, uh, go somewhere where they speak English because this is the language of the future. Mm. And now I didn't come here because of that, but it so happened that those words uh, stayed with me. And I was a political refugee. My mother and I both had Nansen passports, which are refugee passports offered by the U.S. at the time to refugees from uh, communist countries. And um, it was, you know, what in the end became a big saga of getting a green card and the passport and all the travails of a refugee, but uh, well worth it because by then I was very much interested in all that was going on at that time. You were a poet in Romania or maybe at a young age started writing poetry. And so how did that evolve in your young life? 
And then, you know, coming here, how did you tackle writing in English or learning English and then writing and communicating in this language? Well, that, that was very much the, the idea I had, that I wanted to, to be a poet. And I started writing early. In Romania, they like their poets precocious. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, when I, at 16, I published some poems in the local newspaper. Uh, we had very little uh, contact with world literature because everything was censored. And the little that we were able to read in translation was exciting. Also, I read Forbidden Literature, which um, was the poetry of uh, poets between the worst period, between the, the 20s and the 30s. Uh, Romanian poetry was quite an active place of uh, really European, uh, of the European avant-garde. And the poets exiled from Romania at that time, in fact, became quite well known as um, in, in, in avant-garde circles in France and uh, Switzerland and uh, uh, Germany. And so uh, I always wanted to be a poet because being a poet at that time also meant being uh, a rebel and being against the government and against the policies of, uh, of the bureaucracy in power. And uh, because we had no other way of expressing uh, anything like that in the censored press, we wrote poetry that was also political in the sense that hidden among our complicated metaphors were, were protests that nobody understood or cared about. But it was, it was an important, uh, we had an important place in, in, in that world because we were, we were odd and allowed to be odd. And then when I left, um, you know, the idea of being a poet was more important than what language I was being a poet in. In, in the late 60s, America was a very, very troubled country with uh, the Vietnam War. I could have been drafted, I wasn't, but, um, you know, uh, it was a time when families didn't speak to each other at dinner because of their ideas about the war. It was as divided and troubled as it is now, but probably more so, more violent, more... Um, uh, but I loved I loved all that. I mean, I just loved the idea that I could be part of uh, uh, young people uh, uh, on the move, you know, overthrowing an old world. And so that 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 fit me perfectly at nineteen. It's the age of adventure, and um, yeah, poetry is the language of it. Sure, that you came here to a place that I mean, Detroit in the 60s was was a pretty violent place. I grew up in Cleveland and there were race riots there. And then you have this whole scene, the anti-war movement coming on and you, you just characterize that pretty well though of a place for you to land and um, kind of start your American life. Yes, I was on the driving on the John Lodge Expressway in Detroit when the, ri the riots of 1967 uh, started. And uh, on the radio was Jose Feliciano play, uh, singing, Come on, baby, light my fire. <laughs> and all of downtown Detroit was in flames. So it was the background of the sort of Wagnerian background for a 19 year old. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I love the riots. I mean, that's just, just a wonderful 
time and the battles with the police and the, the, the nearness of danger and the feeling that I was doing right, that I had a, a moral mission. In contrast to, to where you had, had just come from. I wonder if you can talk about what I'm going to call your style, uh, your writing style, though you, you write essays, novels, and, and poetry. Um, and to talk about style seems a l- little bit vague, but I've noticed in your writing, your storytelling, your poetry, that there's something disruptive in the form even. And I, as the reader, get kind of thumped or or pricked by a phrase, a sudden vulgarity or um, a coda that that will kind of stop me in my train of thinking. So I'm curious about your process and about your thought of what you aim to elicit in the reader. Well, if, if there is an aesthetic torque there, it is certainly a disruptive one because uh, just as uh, I felt about the war and about uh, the system, uh, I thought that um, the, the words should um, also uh, overthrow uh, prejudices and um, and con- traditional ideas of it. Um, I saw recently a um, somebody who said that the new Z generation, <laughs> people born in the year two thousand, don't like uh, punctuation because uh, they find it offensive because somehow. Uh, punctuation uh, sounds like uh, an order or a, a definitive statement so that it closes the conversation. And I felt that since 1965 that I didn't use punctuation. I used lowercase in my uh, poems. I used uh, first person in uh, with lowercase. I don't like the capital I. Uh, I don't like German nouns because they all start with the capital. So I, I felt that the words should be part of everything else. I mean, they're part of the flow of uh, the politics and the social issues and all of the everything that was happening at the time. And then, you know, later as well with, uh, you know, the new media and uh, and its own uh expression I feel like you should, you, I should always listen and make that part of the flow of my work so um yeah and it, it was mental shock too in, in certain ways because uh, at the time I started but uh, my first book came out I think that uh, very traditional poets were at work um, in, in a way that they had done since the 50s and before that um, there was an awful lot of rhymed verse and, you know, to opposed to that was the new American poetry, which uh, like, you know, which that I learned a lot from a poetry that uh, didn't pay uh, homage to convention, but rather tried overthrew them within within the poems. And that fit very well with the, my idea that uh, poetry is de facto political. It is um, a political act to write something that uh, is shocking, and that uh, nobody will pay you for. In one of your poems, you say, um, writing is the archive of language, that is the archive of the world, that is to say, again, of everything. 
And uh, that leapt out of, at me just because it seemed like it might be your ethic for writing. Well, that, I suppose, has a, another origin, which was in Romania, uh, I, I became aware of this, uh, of the Kabbalah, really, uh, of this way of looking at languages uh, as having uh, a great many secrets locked inside of it. And uh, this particular Hasidic uh, movement that started in Romania in the late 19th century that had as one of its spawn, uh, the poet Tristan Zara, who uh, was a founder of a movement of the Dada movement, uh, they looked at language, but both mystically and uh, in politically and uh, as, uh, as something to be taken apart for its secrets. Uh, one of their tenets was that the Bible was um, uh, there so that uh, all the words were in the wrong order in the Bible. And so they had to be put in order, in another order by every generation in order to eventually see what the meaning of those phrases was. And this was the job of scholars of the Torah. And in an odd way, this leads directly to the Dada avant-garde, which uh, played with words. Uh, through cut-ups and taking phrases that were familiar from newspapers and so on and cutting them to release some kind of hidden energy. Uh, so, yeah, uh, language um, contains um, a great deal that we are not, that we know somewhere but uh, have forgotten. And language is, has a real problem now because it is being used so so badly by propaganda of every kind, every kind of politics that uh, it is in fact becoming a kind of a desert, uh, and it is very few words remains uh, changeable in that way. I mean, simply the politics kills words, and so that kills language. Yeah, so that's the traditional way of uh, of, of writing and teaching. So, Andre, you are a cultural observer, and I think people have come to rely on you in a way for providing a certain sort of lens on our own culture. And you have now lived in this country much longer than the country of your birth. And I just wonder what your observations are about our current condition in this country. I think what's going on globally, we can talk about as well. But the divisions right here, right now. Well, what's going on here is going on all over um, the world. I think there's a historical wheel turning somewhere. Uh, we're, we're heading for a... Um, a dictatorship or an authoritarian regime, just like France and um, uh, Hungary, uh, Serbia, all of which have will have have or will have dictators. And I think that uh, the problem here is again one of partly one of language because uh, the facts and uh, lies have seemed to have exchanged places in some way. Not sure that um, I'm not sure that the, the problem is not the sort of the 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 expression of them. I mean, in the '60s, we used to scream at each other. <laughs> uh, 
Um, so we had the we had the more violence, but also in a funny way, more uh, closer uh, way of disagreeing. More violence, maybe more. Um, I think that what's happened is that uh, uh, there is a there is fear now. There's a great deal of fear and timidity. And so, you know, I always thought that poetry was a way to teach courage, you know, I mean, just civic and, and you know, courage. Um, but I don't think there is, you know, stopping what's going on in, in you know, I think that the Trumpists and, uh, and the fascist Republicans are going to win this time around. And if they do, then we're heading for big trouble. So I don't, you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't have answers. And what is worse is that, I, you know, I, I have, I had opinions, which are not answers, but the opinions, my opinions were wrong, at least in term, you know, about what's going on in the Ukraine now, because I thought that the Russians would never do what they're doing. And uh, I thought they were, uh, but then I realized that this, you know, sociopathic, uh, 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 dictators don't uh, cannot be understood the way a reasonable person, even one who is screaming, might understand. So um, uh, we are in a territory that is very oddly feels like um, uh, invaded by an inhuman and um, evil cloud. <laughs> yeah, I mean that that's a, a word we use a lot: evil. And we mean it when we say it. Um, This history we're seeing on spool every day in Ukraine and um, the people pouring out of that country, I guess I wonder what the short-term effects of this trauma are that we feel here. We feel this wounding here thousands of miles away and it's hard to know what this outpouring of, of people from their native country all over the world is is going to do to the world. And Well, you know, I was lucky enough to be born in 1946, which was one year after uh, uh, the Soviets actually liberated Romania because Romania was an ally of Nazi Germany and uh, if the Germans had they hadn't retreated, I wouldn't be here because uh, all of the Romanians and the Hungarians sent all the Jews to the camps, and uh, certainly my mother would have ended there. And so I would I wouldn't be here. So there is the the you know look at the history. It's, uh, I was lucky, you know, to live under the so-called atomic umbrella for. Um, all these years now things are changing and uh, I'm hopeful in the sense that I think you know this this will pass but it will pass just like World War II did but maybe quicker Um, so in one way or another we will come some of us will come out the other side of this of this horror and the young people, uh, you know, who've experienced the pandemic, the real young ones who are, who stayed, seem to have a, a better sense of um, how to um, set things in order. It seems to me. I mean, speaking to some of them, but 
uh, you know, I can't tell you because I won't even be around. Maybe I'll watch it from somewhere else. I want to talk a little bit about the time you did spend here. You know, I'll remind you and our listeners that, that the last time I spoke with you was when you released a volume of Jeffrey Miller's poetry, and you mentioned him a little earlier in our conversation. And um, you released that, that book like 30 years after his death. So this was an important place to you with lasting relationships, even through death. And I'm wondering how that affected or influenced your writing subsequently and uh, your thoughts about coming back here. Well, Pat Nolan and uh, Jeffrey Miller are my very good friends, uh, and I saw them uh, all the time. And Jeffrey's poetry has uh, lasted. You can read it. Uh, young people read it now, and they think it's one of their contemporaries. He was a, a, a terrific, great poet. And uh, editing him was very hard because uh, he, there are other poems of Jeffrey's that are just not published. And uh, I liked them all, and I didn't think he had, he had written one wrong word, so I had to end up hand out the editing job to our friend Jim Gustafson. But for me, living in, in uh, Monterio next to Mary Heisen's communal uh, setup in uh, near Monterio, I'm not sure if that place, Duncan Mills actually is, doesn't Yes, yes. Uh, you know, it was, was wonderful because they, they uh, you know, being there and uh, I met the Angels of Light who are a theatrical group of streets, of street performers. And uh, there was a, a lot of life uh, there. So I wrote, uh, I wrote my, my first memoir, The Life and Times of an Involuntary Genius, uh, when I was 25 <laughs> years old, so I didn't have much life, but I remembered everything. So, <laughs> so um, and of course, I wrote it in the third person because I was the hero of my own adventures. And um, uh, then, <laughs> and then I wrote a book called. Um, Monsieur Test in America, which was really about my transition from another world and another language into English. And it is a rather surreal story, but it all takes place in the uh, Redwoods. And uh, I also wrote uh, a lot of poems. And uh, I loved the walk in the morning from my house on the hill there to the to the coffee house where I met Pat and uh, Jeffrey and we read the San Francisco Chronicle. Sometimes we didn't talk. <laughs> so, and uh, that that was all very, uh, very inspiring and creative. Pat was very much uh, interested in Japanese uh, poetry and haiku. And uh, he also the French detective novels, and um, yes. we were reading French poets and talking about them. And um, we then we met again in the afternoon or the evening, but it seemed like a long time had passed. So we had urgent things to tell each other. Uh, so it's it was an ideal poet's life. Of course, we were living very uh, cheaply. I mean, you know, things didn't cost very much. I mean, I know five dollars would get you a lot of groceries. And uh, I also remember that the children in, uh, in Monterio didn't know what American currency looked like. Uh, they were all using food stamps. 
and uh, oh. <laughs> I met uh, Dick Gallup, who also lived there, a great poet who moved from New York to um, Colorado and then to to Monterio. Uh, his son, uh, was, I showed him a dollar one time, and he asked me what it was. <laughs> so, and then, of course, next door to Monterio was the Bohemian Grove, which uh, were. Uh, Yes, the power, yes. the powers uh, came by helicopter, and there were sharpshooters in the trees. So, you know, the, the proximity of those worlds was just incredibly inspiring to me. I don't know. Well, you have um, a couple of works that will be published later this year: a poetry collection, "Too Late for Nightmares," and a fantasy novel maybe called meat for meat from the gold rush and i wonder if there's anything you want to tell us about these upcoming works well the the uh, too late for nightmares was written during the pandemic and the, uh, there are there are poems there are reflections on 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 the times but meat from the gold rush was a novel i wrote in san francisco and i only knew about 100 words of english and it was about uh, a uh, New York meat shop that had a, created a time tunnel uh, from which they were bringing uh, the corpses of uh, people killed in the West during the gold rush and transforming it into porterhouse steaks, which they sold to the sophisticates of the city of New York and uh, and it was a silly idea and I but I, I finished it and I sent it to Harper's somebody read it there in a favorable light and sent it back and said well you know it's not really uh, <laughs> it's not appetizing so um, <laughs> then I lost it and I lost the book and uh, I I just found it recently in an archive that I, I gave um, Louisiana State University some boxes of old papers and they found it and so I decided to look at the 25 year old uh, now it's a 75 year old and talk talk to him and uh, it's it's a series of dialogues that I set up in a rather surreal manner between a, a, a young um, poet who <laughs> who didn't know the language and uh, myself now who know even less of it. <laughs> well, we'll look forward to those and look forward to you visiting with us soon. Thank you so much, Andre. <laughs> Thank you, Suzanne. It's good talking to you. My conversation with Andre Kudrescu. Andre and I continued to kibitz a bit together, and I just have to share with you this little bit about his accent. So please indulge us both on this. Mm -hmm. You had a very good gig on radio. They didn't let me say anything, really, but... Uh... Uh, because they couldn't hear what I really said, because a lot of times my accent would uh, confuse <laughs> them, and uh, people would say, did you really say that? You know, sometimes I, I wonder about that um, with your accent, if there are times when people react to you and think you're saying something funny, but you're really saying something unfunny, but they don't know how to penetrate through your accent. Yeah, I count, I count on that. <laughs> it's a strategy, huh? Well, you know, it's, it's hard to keep a, 
to keep your accent for so long, you know. Uh, I just have to take <laughs> lessons from my mother, who's still alive, actually. She's 97. I call her, and she her English is <laughs> not, not all that great. So she, she, she re refreshes my accent. <laughs> well, I think it's a good thing to hear. And uh, well, very good, very good. Well, you take care and look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you. My conversation with Andre Kudrescu. Look for his upcoming publications, his pandemic poems, Too Late for Nightmares, and one of his earliest novels, revisited by his current self, Meet from the Gold Rush. I am Suzanne Lang, and this is A Novel Idea. You know that I would be a liar If I was to say to you hey, Girl, we couldn't get much higher Set the night on fire Barbara Quick is the author of several books, notably Northern Edge, a novel of survival in Alaska's Arctic, A Golden Web, and her international bestseller, Vivaldi's Virgins. Quick is a world traveler, a dancer, a journalist, and reviewer but it is her storytelling and gift for language that distinguish her. Barbara has outed herself as a poet with her lovely volume, The Light on Sifnos, and her latest novel is What Disappears, a richly detailed story that bridges worlds and identity, set at the turn of the 20th century in Tsarist Russia during the time of pogroms, contrasted with the world of fashion and dance in Paris. It's a story of longing and betrayal and of artists. Let's listen to our conversation. Barbara Quick, What Disappears, uh, welcome. It's been such a while since we've had the pleasure of talking. I'm glad we can do it today. I am so glad too, Suzanne. It has been, what, it's been years, hasn't it? It seems like it. It does seem like it. Speaking of years, it seems like this has been a story that has been brewing in you for a long time, or the seeds of it you had years ago. So what is it, uh, before we get into talking about the story, what about it persisted for you? Well, this story has uh, roots deep in uh, the beginnings of my career as a writer. This first seeds were planted by my maternal grandmother, my nana, who was not a very loquacious person. And even though she lived in the United States most of her life, and she had a very long life, she still sounded like she had just gotten off the boat from Russia. And she grew up in a family of tailors in Kishinev in Moldova. And I would always try to get her to tell me stories about her childhood. It was like pulling teeth. She, her first comment was always, who remembers? She didn't want to talk much about it. But little by little, I 
wrested these details from her and they were so evocative. And one that struck me the most was how her mother won the commission to make the hats and coats for the local parochial school. They were Jewish, my, my family in Kishinev, my family is Jewish. But because of this connection to the church, the priest gave them some protection. And as my grandmother told the story, when there was going to be a pogrom, he would allow them to shelter in the attic of the church. And that seemed so mysterious and evocative to me, as well as the story that my grandmother told that twice a year, her mother, who was a, a humble tailor, would take the train to Paris to see the fashions. And this made absolutely no sense to me. They didn't have a lot of money. They weren't elegant people. And certainly making the hats and coats for a parochial school wouldn't require one to have knowledge of high fashion. So this story percolated for a very, very long time inside of me. It started as something called the Russian winter, which I began as the germ of a novel when I was 21. But it eventually, in my musings and my ponderings and my dreaming, I found a reason why my great-grandmother might have taken the train to Paris twice a year to see the fashions. And that was the beginning and the evolution of this new novel, my fourth novel, What Disappears. The book is centered around twins around these sisters who are twins and one of them is a, a tailor a seamstress and and one of them is a ballerina and there's a couple of things I or there's a lot I think we could talk about about this uh, I wondered if you were a twin for one and and what intrigues you uh, about putting these twins at the center of the story well, the closest I came to being a twin was being a, a Gemini, I guess. <laughs> I, there are three children in my family of origin, and we were all very many years apart. So in many ways, I felt like a, an only child until I was nine years old and my little sister was born. And I just adored her. And she became like my child in my mind, and I think maybe even in her mind for a long time. And we were very close. But then when I left home at the age of 17 to go to college, and it was a very unhappy home, and I never moved back. And I think she really felt abandoned. And uh, through the years, um, our relationship deteriorated to the point where she decided not to have anything to do with me about a decade ago. And it was such a source of sorrow to me. It still is. So this idea of a sister's search for the sister who was lost to her is very personal for me. Uh, I made them twins um, because, well, that's what I wanted them to be. And of course, I was writing about different people. I wasn't writing about myself. I'm not a ballerina, although dance and dancing and taking dance classes, occasionally performing, has been a very, very important part of my life for most of my adult life, and still is now. So that's where that came from. And I think the notion of twins is something that 
has been fascinating to us uh, for, you know, I mean, literally thousands of years as a subject to explore, to use. So I couldn't let go of this fact that there were these two women and and through the whole story. And, and I, I don't think we're going to be giving a lot away to say that these two young girls were separated early in their lives. And that is the thrust of the story is, is part of uh, one sister, Sonia, looking for her other sister. And um, I recall you at one time, or more than one time, maybe in the book, using the term doppelganger, which we don't necessarily associate with twins per se. But with these two, there was a difference. And and that difference um, between them was cultural, but there was something more to it. And one of them says how it had been like discovering a mirror that showed a version of her face much kinder than the one she saw every day. And so there was a dark side, too. And, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about developing these two sisters and, and that kind of thrust of their difference. Yeah, absolutely. I think we all have at least two selves inside ourselves. And we all have a very dark side, as well as, you know, the more curated side we want to show the world that we want to hope we can fulfill. And um, by separating these out into two characters, it was was really fascinating for me. The funny thing for me was that as I was writing the book, I had the most fun writing about the the bitchier of the two twins. It's really fun to um, write, to kind of let oneself go in the dialogue and the inner thoughts of someone who is quite angry and resentful. Uh, Both of them are are very bright. They were separated actually as infants, as nine months old. So there's no real memory of one another, only the vaguest memory. It was a memory before language for both of them, or almost before language. And um, finding one another was a joy for the one who was searching, but for the one who had no idea that she had a sister and no idea that she was even Jewish or Russian, it was a nightmare. It was horrible. She felt that somebody had just stolen her identity. And you mentioned uh, one of them is Jewish and the one who was adopted away um, was raised Catholic. And there is this subtext of the Jewish culture and the pogroms. And in fact, well, I don't want to say too much more about certain plot points, but I wonder if you could talk about that in context of the book, but also that some of this uh, really does persist in Russia today, and uh, and we may not be able to escape talking about Russia today, but there still is so much um, anti-Jewish sentiment there. 
No, absolutely. Um, I was raised in a completely secular household. And in order to write many of the details of this book, I had to do a lot of research, just the kind of research I had to do about Catholicism and a cloistered life for Vivaldi's virgins. But as I was writing, as I was doing the research, and I, I did years and years of research, and also digging inside myself, I was coming to grips with my own Jewish identity. What does it mean to be Jewish? I mean, both these sisters are Jewish, as Sonia points out at one point to um, the other sister who is who has her name um, transliterated from Zanetta to Jeannette, a French name. But it is, uh, Sonia says, it's, you know, it's something in the blood. It's not just a matter of religion at all. It's something, a feeling, it's a kind of idealism, wanting to heal the world, or this is what Sonia says. And um, I discovered so much about my own Jewish identity, which is still secular, I'm not particularly Zionist, but it's very strong. And, you know, a novel, I think, writing a novel is always a process of discovery for the writer. The novel is as full of surprises for the writer as it is for the reader. And it was definitely the case in this novel where the story turned out to be so much more personal than I ever thought it would be. Interesting in that, as you're saying it, it's not like your life, but you mine from the depths of it, even those that you are in the process of discovering, or that it helps you discover, it sounds like. Well, what I realized from both those novels, Vivaldi's Virgins and What Disappears, is that I have this tremendous orphan scenario in my life, even though I'm not an orphan. But I think emotionally, I felt like an orphan. And so I was really able to get into the mindset of both the orphan characters, orphaned characters in these novels. It was familiar territory to me, and it was territory that I needed to come to terms with. In this particular book, the one sister, Sonia, she experiences some loss, and she has three children and is by all means, a successful woman. And the other sister, Jeannette, is a dancer. But she has a lot of darkness and disappointment and was adopted away, yet yet loses her mother. And at one point, you describe her beautiful body and, and bathed in stage lights, yet that she keeps a secret ugliness well hidden from the world. And that's getting back to that doppelganger notion, that inner dark side that she experiences. But what you're suggesting is really sometimes our own inner struggle or inner darkness. Well, yes. And, you know, in the case of um, that particular point in the story where Jeanette is reflecting about her her own beauty, you know, in the eyes of the world. And, and yet, like all ballet dancers who dance on toe, her feet are terribly distorted and, and hurt looking and ugly. And she, she tries to hide them 
and they're usually hidden in in um, tights and toe shoes, these beautiful ribbons tied around her legs. And yet she knows that beneath this ethereal beauty, there is all the struggle and all the scarring of her life in the arts, which I could also identify with tremendously. I mean, Jeanette is trying so hard to find the validation that she desperately needs through dance, always striving to get a bigger role, always striving to, to shine in the eyes of the world. And yet it's a pitiless world, the world of professional ballet, especially. And um, she experiences difficulties that I think everyone in the arts who tries to make a life in the arts, who, whose lives are in the world of the arts uh, can identify with it is it's hard it's painful and the goal i think is always to be able to find that desperately needed validation inside oneself not to need the accolades of the world and yeah you know we need them so it, it there's a tension set up there i think in every artist whether a painter or a writer or an actor or a dancer. Yes. You do describe elements of the dance world and, and the Russian ballet world of uh, Tsarist Russia and in France. And I know you are a, a European traveler and, and are fluent in French yourself. And this must have been a lot of fun for you to bring in the ballet personalities of the time and set that scene. Absolutely. Um, I endlessly watched archival ballet videos, some of them really, really old. It's wonderful what you can find on the internet and search through photo archives. I already knew a lot of the ballet vocabulary because you know, I, I have dance training, but as I say, I'm not by any means a ballerina. And my struggle was to find authenticity in getting inside the head of a professional dancer. And I, really my greatest joy for me was after the novel was already done and um, it was uh, at the publishers, I got a to die for jacket quote from the ballet memoirist uh, Gavin Larson, who has since become a, a dear friend. And her response to the novel was so warm. And she just, you know, she said something like, obviously, this was written by a dancer. And I just, it was so wonderful for me mm -hmm. to because, you know, I was pretending on many levels to have knowledge that I really didn't have in my sinews, but that's what writers need to do. We need to somehow channel the sensations, the feelings, the impressions, the memories of all these characters who, you know, whose lives we haven't actually lived. And I should mention that this book is set at the turn and early years of the last century. And I'll say there is a villain in the story, but even he is humanized and really ultimately is a fallible man after all. 
yet for me, when you were talking about this character of Paul and his relationships with women, I got to thinking about men's exploitation of women and the different forms it takes. And Paul pleasures his women and knows how to arouse and satisfy them. But at least Sonia is, is kind of left wondering about this. And, and so I wonder if, if we could just talk a minute about, you know, is a man's violation of a woman somehow less if the woman derives sexual pleasure from that experience? He knew how to pleasure women, but it didn't make it any less a game for him. Well, Paul Poirier was um, an historical figure who actually was, he was known as the king of fashion during the Belle Epoque in in Paris. He was a costume designer to some of the greatest, you know, actresses of the time and certainly the greatest society ladies of the time. He was the fashion designer to go to. And he had a great deal of power in Paris and beyond. He was beloved and he was feared. And men like that, you know, we have men like that in our own time, certainly. There've always been men like that. Men like that can do whatever they want. And up until very, very recently, Suzanne, they have gotten away with it. They have left many scars in their wake, a great deal of PTSD and trauma. And, um, it's not a cut and dried thing. What is this about? And it's something that civilization itself has condoned for as long as civilization has been around. And yet it has affected women throughout time in the same terrible and tragic way. So my characters are grappling with this. They are grappling with this. What what does it mean? How can I think about a man like this? And, and you know, in, as you say, Paul Poirier isn't merely a villain in the book because he's self-deluded. He thinks he's a very kind and loving person and even better than most men because he, he does care about knowing the secret desires of a woman, whether he is designing clothing for her or whether he is making love to her. He's sensitive in that way. And yet he is completely blind to the hurt and the harm that he does just to satisfy his own desires, which he rationalizes because he sees himself as the world sees him as a great artist. So these aren't, you know, these aren't questions with simple answers. And it's a question that haunts both Sonia and her twin. And since you've brought up uh, fashion, that is another subtext in the story um, that I found enjoyable. And this was a transitional time in women's fashion. Um, I'll say the uncorseting of women's bodies. And I wondered if you wanted to talk a little bit about fashion and your interest in it and it in the book. Well, you know, it kind of, I come by it naturally because my great grandmother was a 
a tailor and seamstress and designer uh, in Kishinev many generations ago. But uh, I myself grew up wanting to learn how to sew. My mother didn't sew at all. And my grandmother, you know, she could sew on a button or that was about it. But I really set about wanting to do that. Part of it was because I had an appreciation of very beautiful fabrics and very beautiful clothing, beautifully made clothing. And I couldn't afford it at all. So sewing, really learning to, to sew well, to, to tailor clothes, to use all these Vogue patterns and sew beautiful clothing. Um, it was just something I wanted to do. And there's something so exacting about that too. It's not unrelated to writing because you need to create the underpinnings of a garment. You need to be able to picture it in your mind when the fabric is nothing more than cloth rolled on a bolt. You still need to be able to match that fabric with your idea about the pattern. Imagine how it will look on you or someone else if you're making clothing for someone else. And um, in much the same way, I think novelists design novels through dreaming about them, you know, waking dreaming, thinking about it, imagining what the characters would think in a particular situation, what they might say, how they might react under this kind of stress or that. So I don't know, sewing seemed like a really good metaphor for the arts in general, and even for, for life in some ways, the sense in which we are all trying to repair ourselves. And certainly that's been a quest in, in my own life and still is. It's, it's this notion I talk about ultimately in the book, something I learned about for the book, which in Hebrew is tikkun olam, which is about healing the world. That is a a sentiment that is appropriate for today. That is, that is certain. I'm speaking with Barbara Quick on her novel, What Disappears. And I want to switch gears a little bit, Barbara, because you also have a, a lovely volume of poetry, The Light on Sifnos. And you've been a poet for a long time, and I'd like to talk with you a little bit about that and about your approach to poetry and the difference in it in your life as a writer and your habits of doing it versus the other form of writing that that you have done in novels and screenplays and such. Well, it's all of a piece. We really don't need to switch gears at all. I don't even need to put on another hat. Uh, I do all my writing, both my poetry and my fiction, in my journal first. So they all happen in longhand in the same set of blank books. And um, the poetry does tend to happen first thing in the morning when I'm fresh from sleep. Actually, the best fiction writing does too. But during this last lockdown or during lockdown, poetry was really what kept me alive. It's what 
connected me to myself and the world. And it, it was it was as it's always been in my life since the age of nine, actually, when I first started writing poetry, it's been salvational. I can truly say that poetry has saved my life again and again. It's, it's a way of clarifying everything uh, so that, well, for me, it's been a way of knowing what my feelings are, and of seeing clearly and truly into my own heart and being able to keep my heart open, even when I'm in a lot of pain. And I wonder if you might read something for us. I would love to. Well, you wanted me to read this poem, one of the poems from The Light on Sifnos, and I was really pleased about your choice. Um, this is a, a book that... Um, I, I wrote all of these poems during three weeks in 2019 when my husband, Wayne Roden, and I were um, sojourning on a small Greek island in the Aegean called Sifnos. And uh, we knew very little about this island other than that there weren't many people there and the food was supposed to be very special. So we, you know, we rented a little cottage there and stayed. What I didn't know, what I soon found out was, for me at least, the island was utterly haunted. Uh, I wrote a poem there nearly every day. I kept seeing people who had died. I either dreamed about them or I would see someone on a bus who reminded me so vividly of someone who I knew and loved, but who was gone. It was almost as if this island of Sifnos was a place where people went in the, in the afterlife. So it was very moving, very haunting and very wonderful. I, there were a couple of times when I wrote three poems a day, they just they just poured out of me or poured into me from the landscape itself. And um, we walked a great deal. Um, there was one uh, religious holiday that we decided to observe by, by taking a famous pilgrim's road there to the very top of a mountain where there was uh, a church, one of those beautiful white painted churches uh, against the that beautiful blue sky, and uh, we we walked there together, and this is what I wrote. It's called the Pilgrim's Road. Who can guide us on this journey up this rock-strewn mountainside, studded with thistles and thorns? Who will guide us down again, on the final leg of our passage in the moonless? dark? How will we manage when it's so hard now, both of us still strong enough to walk the pilgrim's road with all the others, young and old, their faces tinged with rosy light? How can we fill our hearts with hope when we harbor no illusions of a light-filled God who will hold us when we stumble through that final backlit passageway, all substance of self dissolving 
in the ocean of sky. I thought that the poems in the book were um, lovely, Barbara, and it was a side of you that I, I just wasn't familiar with. So I was glad to receive the book and to enjoy reading it. And I wonder if there's anything else you'd like to read from it. I just want to say, I'm so glad that you enjoyed the poem, Suzanne. And um, and it's just, it's been a funny thing in these last two years. Poetry was always part of my private life. But suddenly last year, I, you know, I had two poems nominated for Pushcart Prizes and Garrison Keillor re- recorded five of my poems for the Writer's Almanac. And this volume was published, won a prize and was published by Blue Light Press. And it was... Um, it was suddenly as if I had been outed in certain ways as a poet. And it's been, it's been wonderful. And it also, it's, it's a funny thing to suddenly, I guess it's what I have always wanted for my heart to be so visible and so open. Um, I would, I would actually like to read a poem that's not in the book, if that would be okay. Please. This is a poem that was published in the 1980s in the California Quarterly uh, when Sandra Gilbert and the late Elliot Gilbert were the editors there. It's part of my as yet unpublished full-length collection, The Feeling of Earth on My Fingers. And I want to read it today because this poem really connects my new novel, What Disappears, um, with my life as a poet, because the germ that gave birth to the novel was also the germ for this poem, which is called Crow's Feet. Great grandmother came to me in a dream, fluttered at my windowsill, in her hands, a needle and thread. Don't believe what they tell you about angels, my child she whispered in Russian. Only then I noticed her wings, glossy black against the lace curtains. Her feet were tiny and pale, cloud-like. She said, I am the weight of your mother and your mother's mother. I am the tongue grown heavy with silence. She planted one foot each Upon my eyes, I slept the smell of feathers in my nostrils. And today I see crow's feet at the corners of my eyes, a breath of the shtetl over the bed and black feathers everywhere. Barbara Quick, reading a poem. And uh, you said that was from an earlier work of yours? Just was published in a literary magazine, and it's part of my full-length collection, which is still looking for a home, uh, called The Feeling of Earth on My Fingers. Wonderful. Which, it seems to me you have a, a poem in, in The Light uh, on Sipnos that that I recall something about your fingers in the earth. Do I have that right? Yes, you do. We'll leave that for our listeners to discover what disappears is Barbara Quick's novel, 
the light on Sifnos is your volume of poems. Barbara, what a joy to talk to you today. Thank you. Thank you, Suzanne. My conversation with Barbara Quick about her novel, What Disappears, and her book of poetry, The Light on Sifnos. I thank Andre and Barbara for spending such enjoyable time with me, and I thank you for listening. I am always grateful to James Morey and Mark Prell for their work behind the scenes. We are a production of Lit Radio and KRCB Northern California Public Media. I am Suzanne Lang with a novel idea. <laughs>